Today we want to conclude our three-part mini-series entitled Joyfully Endure Hardship from Hebrews chapter 12 to the end that we would fearlessly pursue holiness when suffering so that we might experience God's blessing. Joyfully Endure Hardship. I want to say something briefly about that title because there is uh, potentially some confusion about what it means. Uh, The Bible tells us in the book of Philippians chapter 4 to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. There is never a time in your life, no matter what you're dealing with, where you are called to put that command aside. And if you listen carefully, you get the picture. Rejoice in the Lord. It's not saying to rejoice because of the suffering or to rejoice because of the hardship. It's saying to rejoice in the Lord himself. And he is the reason why we have joy no matter what. Having said that, Isaiah said, Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Hebrews says, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned how to pray, how to trust his Father, and how to submit to his Father's will when he was being oppressed and afflicted. The psalmist said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He even says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Our Heavenly Father uses life's trials and sufferings to draw us to Himself, teach us to rely on His grace, and live in obedience to Jesus Christ, His word. You and I must never forget that our Heavenly Father's love for us and His acceptance of us as sons and daughters is foundational for approaching any evil, any suffering, and any hardship in this world. His love for you and acceptance of you are proven through your trials because in your trials... God transforms your character to be more like Jesus's. He gives you hope when you see Christ being formed in you. He pours out his love in your heart by his Holy Spirit in order to equip you to handle afflictions and afflictors like Jesus would. Jesus endured the cross because of the joy set before him. Future joy is what equipped Jesus spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically to endure Calvary and triumph over its hardships and overcome the world. The shame of Calvary did not stop Jesus when he considered what the results of his crucifixion would be. 
This is not some sweet sentiment on a Hallmark card. You also must be captivated by your future joy in glory in order to triumph over your present trials and overcome them. People say, well, that's just like pie in the sky to them. Well, I want to submit to you that that is the most practical way to deal with your present sufferings is by thinking of and being captivated by your future joy and glory. When you put a puzzle together, if it's a thousand pieces, I'm not talking about those ten-piece puzzles, if it's a thousand pieces or three thousand pieces, if you've ever done that before, you need a picture to know what you're looking at, or what you're planning to put together. You don't even know where to start if you don't know what you're supposed to be wound up having. When you put that puzzle together, you put the picture of the finished product in front of you. And then you start working piece by piece, border piece by border piece, corner piece, and then you fill it out. That's what life is like. You have no clue and no idea how to deal with the sufferings of life unless you know what the end result is going to be. That's the only way to deal in this world. Sufferings, afflictions, trials, and oppression can leave you weary, faint-hearted, angry, anxious, vengeful, frustrated, fearful, hopeless. The list goes on. And the prescription for all of these emotions is still to consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. Your Father's purposes in your afflictions is to make you holy and righteous. We talked about that a little bit last week. The reason He wants you to be holy and righteous is in order that His peace might be a felt reality in society and culture. That's one of His chief aims, so that the earth might be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just like the waters cover the sea. That's God's goal and purpose in this world. The fruit of righteous living that flows from a right standing with God through Jesus Christ is peace, shalom. Peace in Scripture is illustrated as a wasteland transformed into a life-giving oasis. The return of Eden God's glory being seen and His Lordship gladly received. You see this in Isaiah 35, where the chapter begins with this portrait of a wilderness being changed into a life-giving and healing oasis. And right in the middle of that portrait is a picture of, of God Himself and His glory. And that's what this section today is getting at. Let's read Hebrews 12, verse 12 through 17. 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. In Isaiah 35, this opening verse, verse 12, is quoted. That's where the writer of Hebrews got it from. It simply says, therefore, the drooping hands and weak knees strengthen them. And in Isaiah's passage, as we alluded to earlier, uh, the reason why this call to strengthen weak knees and drooping hands is given is because God is bringing in his peace, his shalom. He's bringing in the gospel message, the gospel age. And that gospel age is an age that brings transformation in society and culture and the lives of people. And because of that, because of that great hope, because of that great expectation of the world experiencing a greater sense of God's peace, His shalom, His, his well-being, wholeness, completeness, the Bible calls us in Hebrews, as it called people back in Isaiah, to strengthen the drooping hands, be ready to, to work for this kingdom to be extended. Strengthen your weak knees, be ready to run this race for the kingdom of God to be extended in the world. That's what the calling is here. The primary thing that strengthens you when suffering affliction, as it says in Isaiah, if you go back and look at that chapter in chapter 35, is to behold your God. Give your attention to God and His glory seen in Jesus Christ. God is committed to bring salvation. He's committed to bring judgment as well. The other things in the book of Hebrews that strengthen us is exhortation. See that there's not a sin for unbelieving heart in any of you that turns away from the living God, but exhort one another every day while it is called today, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Also, prayer strengthens us. See, we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of the living God. We have a high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way as we have been yet without sin. Therefore, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That passage is related to chapter 13 in Hebrews, verse 9, where it says it's good for you to be 
for your heart to be strengthened by the grace of God. The witness of other people strengthens us. That's what the whole of chapter 11 is about, cataloging all of the people of faith in the Old Covenant and how their witness to us strengthens us. Another thing that strengthens our walk is uh, prioritizing the kingdom of God. You notice in the beginning of chapter 12, it says to lay aside every single weight. We're running a race. And things that are not a priority in the kingdom need to be done away with. We need to separate ourselves from things that don't promote the kingdom of God. And they're not even talking about sinful things in that regard, but sin is another thing. Repentance strengthens us to run the race. Not only to lay aside every weight, but the sin that so easily besets us. We're called to repent. And again, from last week's message, our Father's loving discipline is one of the things that strengthens us to run this race. The Bible goes on to talk about how the primary thing, however, that strengthens us is Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 3 of chapter 12 how it says we're to consider the hostility that was given to Jesus by sinful people, and the reason why is so that we would not get weary and that we would not be faint-hearted in this race. And seeing things from Jesus' point of view, this is a review that we need uh, to meditate on. When Jesus considered the humiliation of the cross, it says he despised it, which means no matter how bad it was, it didn't move him away from his resolve to complete the mission. It didn't paralyze him in his sufferings. He still was committed, now more than ever, because he knew what the end result of his crucifixion would be. And it was that joy that was set before him that caused him to endure. These things we repeat with reason because they're things that slip away from our thinking when we're hurt and suffering. The Bible next tells us in chapter 12, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. This is why we need to be strengthened. This is why we need to strengthen the weak knees. This is why we need to strengthen the drooping hands. Because things can get worse when we are burdened down with sorrow and suffering and not looking upward toward God. The Bible says, Make straight paths for your feet, which this is a quote from Proverbs chapter 4. Verses 20 through 27, it's specifically verse 26, but the context is 20 through 27. And in that context, uh, the audience is being told that they're the son, my son. And it's, it's a call to carefully listen to and pay attention to the word of God. That in so doing, it will bring life and it will bring healing 
to those who hear. And this is, this is the calling of a father to a son. It's not a call for works righteousness. It's not a call for, um, uh, to, to, to obey in order to be saved. It's the call of a father to someone who already is a son. And it's saying to that son to listen to your father, to listen carefully and diligently to what he has to say, to be intimately devoted to what God says in his word. And when we are, it brings life and it brings healing to us as well as through us. And in that passage, it talks about making straight paths for our feet by obeying the Lord. It's really a call to holiness is really what's being uh, laid upon us here. It's a call to respond to our Father's love by humbly paying close attention and being devoted to His words. When you are committed to a holy way of living in response to God's grace, you become an agent of life and healing. Now, Jesus is the only one who can give someone life, and He's the only one who can bring healing. And yet Jesus lives inside of His people. And he aims to use the church as his headquarters on earth through which he brings life and healing through the proclamation of the gospel to other people. He brings peace to other people through that gospel. You and I are called to be agents of healing and of blessing to everyone that we come in contact with. And without this type of commitment, as it says in Hebrews, what's lame will become dislocated. It will become even worse. The situation in this world will become worse if we don't take it upon ourselves to be committed to the proclamation of the gospel and the pursuit of peace, which we're about to get into, um, in this world. And you can, you can look at this from two, two examples. Sometimes we can say of ourselves, well, I'm just one person. What can I do? Um, my, my influence is so insignificant. I'm just little old me. I don't even know that many people. But we have to think about this thing biblically. Daniel was one person. And yet Daniel said in, in his, the, the book named after him, in chapter one, he he made a, resol- a, a he resolved not to defile himself with the things of the king. The food is what specifically is highlighted, but it's, it's pointing to the things of the king. He he resolved that he was not going to defile himself in that way, and look what God did with Daniel one one person. Daniel was ruling Babylon in many ways. God did amazing work through Daniel because of a simple resolve that he was not going to defile himself. He was going to live a holy life in response to the grace of God that he knew. And then you look at another example, the example of Achan in in Joshua 7. Now, you know, when Joshua brought the people into the land, they, they started with Jericho, 
And God did an amazing work. By the faith of these people in God, he brought the walls of Jericho down. They shouted and the walls came tumbling down. We know the song. And God told his people not to touch any of the devoted things. That they were, be, they were to be destroyed, they were to be given over to God. But Achan touched those things. He hid them in his tent. And then the next time when Israel went out to do battle at Ai, they lost. They lost the battle. And Joshua was so discouraged and so depressed and he didn't know what to do. He was bowing down to God and praying and wondering why God even brought him out. And God tells Joshua, get up. There's sin in the camp. And they discovered that Achan sinned. And because of his sin, uh, God's people suffered because of his sin. That they were defeated in battle. Their enemies routed them and chased them because one man wasn't committed to the cause of holiness. So see, you have a major impact. If you walk in holiness, you can have a major impact for the kingdom of God. If you don't walk in holiness, you can have a major impact in hurting the cause of the church. So see, in many ways, it really does come down to you within this context of the corporate body of Jesus Christ and how you're willing to live. We're called uh, next to strive for peace with everyone. And it, of course, means everyone in the world, but it's, it's in the context here, it's really pointing to within the body of Christ. We need peace. We need to pursue peace. We need to pursue the, the well-being of everyone in the body of Christ. And we've been talking a lot this week about racial well-being in light of the events that took place a couple of weeks ago with the death of George Floyd. And that's something that's necessary in the body of Christ. We need to pursue the well-being of every single one in the body of Christ. No matter where you come from, no matter what you look like. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, that's where it has to start. Many times in the culture and the society in which we live, the society and the culture can never rise higher than the light within that culture and society. The Church of Jesus Christ has a major impact in the world around us. And if the lighthouse is not shining the way it should, there really is no mystery why stuff goes down badly in the streets. One of the protests that's maybe not happening right now, that should be happening, is, a, is the church protesting itself. The church marching against itself. Because we've got a lot of repenting to do in Zion. We've got a lot of changing to do in Zion. Our credibility, our approval rating, so to speak, in the world is, is dropping down many days. Because there's just as much uh, sin and racism, and you name other sins, sexual immorality, in the church like it is in the world. 
And the world looks into the church and says, well, you all are no different than we are. We can all get together and go to our jobs no matter where our ethnic background might be from. And we can work for a common cause, but when it comes to the church, it's very difficult to get different ethnic groups on the same page with one another. Because there's been a history of all kinds of violence and hate against African Americans, some against whites, some against Asians, some against Hispanics. We all have suffered down through history. And we need to be pursuing peace and uh, with one another. Peace is more than the absence of hostility, but the presence of harmony, the presence of help. It's not just the absence of hate, but the presence of love. We are not called to leave each other alone, but to seek one another, to listen to each other, to understand each other. We can truly help one another. Uh, the Bible says that the God that we serve is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions. And he does it with a reason, so that we might be able to comfort others in any of their afflictions. So it's not always necessary for us to walk a mile in one another's shoes to be able to listen and understand and help. God says you can help. Because the type of comfort God gives is like those old Radio Shack plug-in things. They used to have all kinds of adapters you could pull off and put another one on and then take that one off and put a different one on. And you could plug any of your devices in one unit. That's the way God's comfort is. It's so powerful and so potent. If you've received his comfort, when you were afflicted, you can take that comfort and you can help others in the afflictions that they have. It says in any affliction, our sufferings are not that unique. And what evils have been done to us, we have done worse to Jesus Christ. And yet he can relate to us. He who never sinned, he can relate to us. And love us. And he's put that love he has within us. We need to take time for one another. And spend time with each other. And listen to one another. Holiness, again, comes up and is emphasized. It says we're to strive for peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is, is repeatedly emphasized in this section of Scripture for a reason, because a holy life has a huge impact in this world. We have no idea how monumental an impact we can have if we walk in holiness in response to God's grace given us in Jesus Christ. Living separated for God and His purposes is what it means to be holy. It's, 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 it's being separated from sin by God for God's purposes. And, and when that happens, as a result of being saved, it also means a growth 
in godliness, a growth in our character to look more like Jesus Christ. Living separate for God and his purposes is the result of being saved, and it is the essential path according to this passage, to seeing the Lord. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the sense is, they and only they shall see God. Here is what a holy resolve sounds like. Listen to this. I'm sure you've read this before, but listen to it again. This is what a holy resolve sounds like. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's an amazing testimony. That comes from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. He only had one thing on his bucket list. He said, If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, that's, that's, what, that's what Paul says, you know, all of those afflictions, he knew he was going to be afflicted. He knew he was going to suffer. And he said, but this doesn't move me. The fact that I'm going to suffer in this life, Paul is saying, the fact that affliction is coming, wherever it comes from, the fact that it's going to happen does not stop my resolve to finish the course God gave to me. You know, people will say, well, that was the Apostle Paul. Well, no, that's you too. Because Paul said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, it means fruitful labor for me. And what shall I choose? I am hard-pressed between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But I know that I will remain with you. And if I remain, that means his... He's, it means fruitful labor, because Paul's end result was that when he encountered people, he wanted to give them a reason to glory in Jesus Christ. Is that the way you and I live? Do we wake up in the morning and say, no matter who I come in contact with today, Lord, I want to give people a reason to glory in Jesus Christ when I leave them. That's something we should pray every day. We should get up saying, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because Paul concludes that letter, and throughout that letter he says to do what he does. To have the same attitude that he's demonstrating for this church. To get up and say, no matter who it is, that I come in contact with today, God, would you work in those circumstances in such a powerful way that my life and my words and my witness gives that person or people a reason to glory and boast 
in Jesus Christ. That's what God wants from you. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's what God wants from his people. And I can promise you this, that if you commit that with a genuine heart every day, you will see amazing things happening through you by the hand of God in the lives of other people. Paul got this holy resolve from his Savior, of course. The prophet said of the Savior that Jesus said, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Why am I telling you this? Why am I reading this? Because the Bible says when you're weary and faint-hearted, you must consider the hostility that was against Jesus Christ. If you don't want to lose heart, that's what you must consider. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This is the same thing that's said of us. If God is for us, who can be against us? They might stand opposed, but they will be unsuccessful. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. The entire church uh, is, is next called, if you read again in Hebrews chapter 12, the entire church is, is next called after this passage to be holy. In verse 15, it says, see to it, and the word see to it is the same word where we get our word bishop. It's the word episkopos. It means that everybody has at some level, a pastoral calling. Everyone is supposed to see about or care about, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's a major calling. God is calling the entire church to this pastoral oversight for one another, to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In the, the original audience uh, were being tempted to turn back away from Christianity and go back to Judaism, which at this point had become a very self-reliant religious system of works righteousness instead of relying on God and His grace, which was revealed in the gospel when Jesus came. So Jesus came, He died on the cross for sins, He was buried, He was raised from the dead, and there was a group of people who were saying, well, that, that didn't do it for us. We still want the temple sacrifices. We still want the blood sacrifices. And God is basically saying that whole old system is, is kaput at this point. All of that is simply a reminder of sin. It's not going to remove sin. It's not going to deal with the conscience. It's not going to help you. It's not going to bring you closer to God. It's all a self-reliant system at this point. And so it's the same for us. 
we're always tempted to rely upon ourselves, to rely upon the works that we do, and not to rely on the grace of God to drive us. Paul said, it's the love of Christ that compels me to no longer live for myself, but for the one who died and rose again on our behalf. The grace of God not only saves us, but it teaches us to live a godly life. And if we try to obtain godliness or holiness apart from the grace of God, it will never work. And it's this grace of God and, 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 and experiencing the fullness of this grace that we're supposed to give oversight to one another that we are experiencing the grace of God. And the thing that we may not like to hear a lot of times is that we, we experience the grace of God mostly in times of weakness. When Paul had a thorn in the flesh and it wouldn't go away and he prayed to God and prayed to God and kept praying and, and to have it removed and Jesus' response was, no, I'm not taking it away because I want you to know how sufficient my grace is, how sufficient it is for you simply to rely on me giving gifts to you and doing favors for you. I want you to know that my power is perfected when you're weak. That's something that we don't often like to hear. We don't like to be weak. We don't like to be broken. But Jesus says, that's where my power is perfected in your weakness, in your brokenness, in the brokenness in society even, brokenness in the culture. That's what's supposed to lead us to run to Christ Jesus. And his power comes down upon us, and we experience it afresh. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And then it says, see to it that no, uh, it, it explains a little further what's, what's going on here, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Now this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's a section, verses 17 through 20, part of which says, Beware, lest there be among you a root-bearing, poisonous, and bitter fruit. And then it explains exactly what that is. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And the Bible says of such an attitude, the Lord will not be willing to forgive someone who persists in that kind of attitude. But rather, the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. They're very terrifying words. But what it's saying here is that a bitter root that grows up and defiles many is a root that at its core says, I can hear the gospel, I can hear the covenant, I can quote the creed, and I feel safe in so hearing. But then I can go live whatever kind of way I want to live, and it doesn't make a difference. 
And God says that kind of attitude produces a bitterness. It produces a, a resentment. It produces a poisonous root and poisonous fruit that can defile many in the body of Christ. And so we have to be careful. God calls us to be faithful in our covenant relationship. Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And it matters what we do in private. It matters what we do under pressure. It matters whether we are committed to the covenant that Christ has made with his blood. Because we can, we can quote the theology, we can be uh, precise in our doctrine, and we can know the creed and, and say it flawlessly, and then go on living as if it doesn't even move us. And the Bible says that is a bitter root that will defile many. And that bitter root can also come out as bitterness and resentment an unwillingness to follow through on all of the dictates of that covenant, one of which is the power to forgive people who've hurt you, the power to love an enemy. You talk to some Christians, they're just not willing to love an enemy. And that's very hard to hear. But you were the enemy of Jesus Christ. You hated him. And he loved you. And he calls you to reflect that same kind of love to your enemy. It's a hard call, but it's the call of grace. Lastly here, the Bible goes into, in Hebrews chapter 12, it's a command to be sexually pure. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And the combination of this sexual immorality with being unholy is probably pointing to, uh, in light of the Old Testament passages, an unfaithfulness to the covenant with God. Again, Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride and we are called, uh, if we're going to see peace in society, to a faithfulness to God. Esau is the example that's given. He was unfaithful and unholy. He was anti-kingdom in his living. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. He sold his birthright for his belly. He was a lazy, slothful person. He was a hunter. He could have went out and hunted anything. But he saw his brother preparing the lentil stew, and he said, give me some of that stew. And Jacob said, well, give me your birthright. And the Bible concludes by saying Esau despised his birthright. He looked down on it. He counted it insignificant, small. He looked at it with contempt. And then it says later on he wanted to inherit the blessing, and he couldn't do it. He sought the blessing with tears, with loud cries. And he didn't get it because he despised his birthright. You know, the actions we take have consequences. We reap what we sow. What you plant is going to grow and overflow. 
Our actions have consequences. Esau's action had a consequence. Why would God bring up Esau to a bunch of believers? Well, he did, because they were in danger of selling their birthright. Well, what was the birthright? The birthright is what God told Abraham, that Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and, and I'm going to use you to be a blessing to all the nations. And we see that come to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and you and I, in Christ Jesus, have been given every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And we are called to be a blessing wherever we set our foot, whomever we might be with. Listen to Paul, Philippians 1, verse 12. He's in a prison cell. He's being treated with affliction. What does he say? He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. They put me in prison. Well, now I have a new audience to preach the gospel to. That was Paul's perspective. And he calls us to imitate that sort of perspective. Paul says, no matter what happens to me, whether it's life or whether it's death, as long as Christ Jesus is honored in my body, as long as he gets made famous, as long as he gets celebrated and made glorious in my body, Paul said, I don't care whether it's through life or through death, as long as he gets the glory. That's got to be our attitude as well. You've been given a birthright. You have been blessed with every single possible spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. And you have been called to spread that blessing abroad. And it's interesting when you think about it. Nothing can stop what God wants to do through you whether it's been disenfranchisement, whether it's the way people might look at you, whether you're being treated with racism or oppression, it cannot stop. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we should not pursue the ridding of oppression. Of course we should pursue that. Duh, that's an obvious point. We're supposed to be those people in society pursuing well-being. It starts in the church, and it flows out of the church into society, into the culture. But while we're in the process of pursuing that peace, there's often all kinds of constraints and all kinds of afflictions and all kinds of oppression that we get to think, well, I'm being held back. You cannot be held back with respect to the kingdom of God. And we set our heart I'll resolve like Daniel did and say, I'm, I'm not defiling myself with these worldly things. I want to stand God for you. and You can do whatever you want to with my life. I just want to stand for you. And that type of posture, that type of humility, that type of attitude, God will use however he chooses to use it and you can't stop him. God rules in the army of heaven and he rules over the inhabitants of this earth and he will not be stopped in terms of doing what he aims to do through his holy people. God stopped Nebuchadnezzar in his tracks 
And Daniel was the one that gave him that word from the Lord. You have a birthright. That birthright is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It is a treasure in jars of clay. You are a holy nation. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's treasured possession. You are a proclaimer of the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is your identity. That is your birthright. And it is untouchable. And nobody can stop its expression when it comes from a heart set on fire by Christ and resolved to do the will of God in response to the grace found in the gospel. You cannot stop. Jesus said, I will build my church. Didn't he say it? And what the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. No, they won't. Sometimes we get ourselves tied to worldly things and we wonder, um, why? Um, I just noticed the time. Folks, this is a long sermon. Um, I'm just about to conclude it now. We get ourselves tied to worldly things and worldly goods and we wonder why uh, things um, don't work out sometimes. But when you tie your heart to the kingdom of God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing can stop what God wants to do through you. Nothing and no one, no system, no institution. And we need to make sure our resolve is in the right place. A holy resolve for kingdom purposes. God bless you.